Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Well, welcome back to another really great and important conversation. Um, Jim, I know you already know this, but our listeners may not know that I actually started attending MEC when I was in middle school. Um, I had been invited by a friend, and the MEC that I showed up to, that they brought me to, was meeting in a local elementary school. And I'm not going to say that it was like a small gathering. It was definitely you know, bigger than small, but it was not the mech of today with like thousands of thousands of attendees. Um, and I'm sure, you know, in many ways for you in particular, you know, watching mech develop and grow is probably similar to like watching a child grow up in which, in which case, like you don't notice the change every day, but each year as you look back, um, kind of on flashbacks from the past year, you can definitely tell that growth has taken place. And I feel like, um, that's what my experience at Mech has been like, you know, throughout the years is just this kind of gradual, consistent growth that has been accompanied by, you know, kind of gradual, consistent changes, really just as Mech has tried to keep up with the times and continue to be relevant to the people who have been entrusted to our care, which is why for me, at least, I, I can't imagine, Jim, I'm, I'll be interested to hear what you think about this, but for me, it was shocking the first time that I heard Mech referred to as a mega church. I don't remember how many years ago it was now, but um, that was, I, I never really thought about us that way. It's not like we became like that overnight, but then it also, you know, started to catch me off guard, all of the criticisms about mega churches. Um, few of them, I will, I'll admit, have kind of caused me pause and, and a lot of self-reflection about the way that ministry can look, but the majority of them I'll say, at least in my personal experience, have not portrayed you know, an accurate representation of my experience at Mac or the handful of other mega churches that I've attended. So that's actually what I want to talk to you about today. Um, the criticism that is kind of consistently lodged at mega churches, um, because as the pastor of a mega church, um, I want to hear what that's like for you, you know, how you experience that criticism, what you think about it. If there has been, you know, a couple of points that have caused you pause or things that have, you know, challenged you in the way that you think about ministry. So if you're okay with it, like I have like several just statements that I have heard, been told or read through the years that I was going to work through and just get your feedback on. And then certainly towards the end, you can add your own, you know, thoughts or criticisms that you've personally heard. Um, does that, does that format work for you? So put on my thick skin. <laughs> yes, maybe. <laughs> I guess so. I think you I had to put on I think this is probably healthy. Yeah, I was going to say, I think you put, you had to have put your thick skin on a long time ago. So, yeah. All right. Well, here's the first one. These are in no particular order, but here's the first one that came to mind, which is that oftentimes people think that mega churches are built on charismatic personalities, but really not on orthodoxy. What do you think? Well, let's not put those two uh, as opposites. Like if you have a charismatic personality at the helm, you automatically are not being orthodox. Or if you are being orthodox, you obviously wouldn't have a charismatic personality as a leader. I, I just think that's a, that's a, that's not a fair uh, pairing. I, I do think though that uh, the idea that you abandon orthodoxy to get warm bodies and just infuse it with personality 
can sadly at times be true of, of large churches, but I don't think it's it's the norm. And I also think we have to be really careful, even as we talk about a charismatic personality, like what are we talking about? Does that mean that that person themselves is vacuous, that they themselves don't have doctrinal depth that, or that they you can't be a leader or a teacher and have an outgoing charismatic personality? I mean, what do you do with the teaching gift that Paul writes about and that is mentioned in many of the gift listings, um, you know, in Ephesians 4 and Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and, and 1 Peter 4 and such. And so I, I think that, um, so, you know, there is this thing called a teaching gift. And, and when you sit under a, a gifted teacher, they're often charismatic, they're often dynamic, they're often engaging. Uh, that's what makes them a, a good teacher. So I think that um, we have to be a little careful there. I also feel like um, the, the myth, and I do think it's a myth, that large churches tend to be liberal or, or to shy away from orthodoxy. I, I do. I think that needs to be exposed. There was a book written many, many years ago uh, uh, that was a major sociological study, and it was simply called Why Are Conservative Churches Growing? And the whole idea was that they were charting it sociologically that conservative churches are the ones that were getting large and were becoming most of the mega churches, while mainline Protestant liberal churches were in decline. And so this idea that if you're large or growing, you must be abandoning orthodoxy just isn't supported in either sociological studies or the churches themselves. Most large churches have extremely conservative doctrinal statements. Um, and, uh, and that's one of the reasons why they're growing. They, they stand for something. They're, 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 is, they're, is not, um, they're not offering the world something it already has. They're, they're really offering this, this, this gospel message. But having said all of that, when a church is built primarily on a charismatic personality, and, and that really is what it's built on. Uh, I think that's very dangerous. And I think that we have seen large churches uh, go through enormous difficulties when that is the case, either when that charismatic leader retires or moves on or falls into, sadly, if there's any kind of um, immorality, uh, then you realize, okay, we were built around a personality and that wasn't a healthy, and that's not a healthy church anyway. A healthy church is not built on a personality. Even if you do have a charismatic personality at the helm, or leading it or as a primary teacher, if that's what, you know, you don't want to be built on that, you can be served by it, but you don't want to be built on mm. it. Well, another criticism, I think it's actually related to that. And it's this idea that um, mega churches do evangelism really well, like hence the large crowds, but they don't disciple people well. Like that is, they can bring in people, but they don't know how to, or they don't effectively deepen people's faith. So they just have a large amount of superficial Christians. This is this has actually been one of the larger criticisms that you often hear bandied about. And I've been a little testy about it over the years. And, and the reason is, is because the way it's often portrayed is that if you are doing evangelism, if you're focusing on evangelism, you must not be focusing on discipleship. You must not be doing discipleship like it's an automatic. And I, I will I've often said, well, if that's true, Jesus lied. Because he's the one who said evangelize and disciple uh, and, and make it one thing, not two things or not things that are opposed to each other. In the Great Commission, go out and make disciples and then teach them everything. And so this idea that somehow that those two things are at war with each other, that if you if you focus on evangelism, you must not be doing discipleship. Well, that's not a biblical church. That's not a uh, that's not a, a, a Great Commission church. A Great Commission church is doing both. And uh, in fact, a large church wouldn't be large if that was true. 
you might get a crowd at first, but you wouldn't keep a crowd. You wouldn't, you know, year after year growing it because discipleship is absolutely key to assimilation. It's key to serving. It's key to giving. It's key to inviting. And so everything that is making a large dynamic church large and dynamic would be rooted not simply on evangelism and drawing a crowd, but from the crowd also developing a core. And um, and so I do think it's it's a it's a false dynamic, a false dichotomy. I'm sorry, uh, and the insinuation that if you you can't do both, uh, but when you can. Now I will say this as a leader: what is true is that if you hang around an evangelistic church that is also doing discipleship, but let's just say, you know, a church that is known for reaching people too, you're probably going to hear a disproportionate amount about evangelism and about inviting friends and about reaching out. And the reason is, is because the natural flow of the depraved church, and every church is depraved, full of depraved people, the natural flow left to itself is to turn inward and to focus on, you know, felt needs of the believers. And so a leader has to spend a disproportionate amount of energy to keep the church turned outward, to have an outward focus and be inviting in friends and to stay focused on evangelism. And so it may feel like, wow, there's a lot of talk about evangelism, but that's, that's a little misleading because it doesn't mean that you're taking that evangelism energy out of discipleship. You're doing both, but you have to, as a leader, put a disproportionate amount of energy to keep the church turned outward because of its natural flow. Um, and if you are being evangelistic, it forces you to do discipleship because all you have to are non are new Christians. And so you're constantly having to do discipleship. Um, and so uh, now, but, but what I will say, and again, and I don't want to be snarky about this, but I will say that some people who say, you know, these churches don't do discipleship, you push further and it's like, OK, we're not doing a certain kind of discipleship you want. In other words, you, you know, yeah, we're doing discipleship, but we're discipling people for a mission. We're discipling people for various things. We're not giving you, and I love Beth Moore, but I'm, you know, and but we're not giving you the seventeenth Beth Moore study on sixteen in a row that you've never acted on any of them before, and you're just looking to be almost spiritually titillated with the latest discipleship stuff, and 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 you've never done anything with it. So, in other words, we're not about putting making people spiritually fat. We're trying to get people spiritually fit. And, and so the discipleship takes a different angle, perhaps. In other words, we're not just catering to all these felt needs in the name of discipleship, but we're, we're, we're trying to run a, a, a really good boot camp. Well, um, I guess I, I guess these are all kind of related to each other. But the next question that I had or criticism that I had written down, I think is more of one that I've heard anecdotally more than anything else. Like as people have left mega churches or larger churches saying things like it is nearly impossible to engage in real authentic community in a mega church. What do you think about that? Well, if that was true, the church would never be a mega church. Yes. I could. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, really, it was, it's, 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 it's kind of like the um, uh, small doesn't give you good community any more than large automatically gives you good community. It just depends on how intentional that community is about being community and and fostering community. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's really interesting. And again, I I, I want to be careful because I don't want to sound either defensive or or as I said, snarky about this, but I, at the same time, I also want to um, not let it, you know, some things that are kind of thrown at mega churches or large churches that are just really not thought out and they're not fair criticisms. And we can talk more about what are some fair criticisms later on, but I mean, many are not. And for example, 
you can't experience authentic community in a large church. And I actually, they'll often go back to Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they'll say, now this is community. You know, this is life on life. And this is what was happening in the early church. And, and this is what it's most like. And I'm sitting there going, yes, I totally agree. And would you please go back and read a few verses earlier and see what happened? This was a mega church. This was Pentecost. 3,000 saved. And right after Pentecost was the formation of the Acts 2, 42 through 47 picture of community. Well, and it was also the community of Jewish believers. This is before, you know, expanded out to include a lot of Gentiles where it gets a lot more messy. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so you, you have, you have this, uh, this vision of community uh, that was uh, being reflected in this very large church, very large, new embryonic, thousands of people church. So we have to be careful about this small, good, big, bad, small community, big, no community. I mean, some small churches are small for a reason. They're 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 cold. They're cliquish. Um, they they um, and and large churches are often large because they're warm. They're friendly. They're welcoming. They're inviting. There, there's an old analogy, not original for me. I, I actually I think I think this actually comes from Leith Anderson, but I could be wrong on that. But it's a it was an analogy of like a Lego block. Now you know how Legos work. Okay, well, if you just take a normal Lego block, it's got like six or eight little places that you can attach another Lego to. And the, the idea is, is that once a Lego block gets full, and if you're thinking about it in terms of relationships, once it gets full, it can't, it, you can't attach any more Legos to it. You need fresh Legos, new Legos to keep building and expanding. And so what often happens is in a closed, small, cloistered community, everybody's got their Lego blocks filled. And uh, it's often easier in a larger growing community to meet people and to add friends because everybody's got a lot of people are new and a lot of people have got room on their Lego block to add relationships. And so uh, I think size has nothing to do with it. It has to do with just being intentional about community and fostering community and, and assimilation. And, um, and again, I, I would just argue that many of the big pictures of intimacy and community in the New Testament were built off of very large churches like Pentecost and Acts 2.42. 247, and also the obvious statement that if large churches were unfriendly, cold, uh, hard to get into, all that, they wouldn't get, they wouldn't be large. Can you go to a large church and you find yourself lost or you find yourself, I, I'm not meeting people or whatever? <clears throat> well, yeah, um, but I would say, so, but did you, did you take advantage of what that church was offering you? Um, I remember one time I, this is years ago, and I, I, Apparently wasn't having a good day. I was, <laughs> my tanks were low, or I don't know what it was, but I, I was walking between the services, and this 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 couple stopped me, and they said, "Well, this place isn't very friendly, and we we we've been coming for X number of weeks, and we just aren't meeting anybody, and nothing's happening, and you know all this kind of stuff." And I just and I, I just for whatever reason, I I I, I just had something switch in me. And I looked at him and I didn't say it unkindly, but I did say it. I said, well, have you joined a small group? No. Have you volunteered to be part of a serving team? No. Have you taken advantage of these social events that we've offered designed for newcomers? No. Have you taken our team life class with full of other people exploring, you know, the church for their life? No. Um, have, have, you, have you waved and said hello and smiled at anybody? <laughs> you know, have you done anything? And you know, the answer was, was that if you sit back in a passive way, I don't care whether the church is thousands or hundreds or dozens, uh, you know, community is not, I mean, it's very, 
you, you're going to have to make a certain amount of effort. And I think that what large churches do well, which is why they're, they tend to be large, one of many things, is that, you know, they've got all these opportunities for people to get connected, all these opportunities for community. But you got to kind of surface, raise your hand, make a small effort, uh, because otherwise we don't know. I mean, we're not just going to run through an atrium and tackle you because we think we don't know your face and force you into a relationship. So, in fact, one of the things that's, that's good about a lot of large churches is they give you a certain period of anonymity where you don't have to say anything, sing anything, sign anything, give anything or do anything while you're exploring the Christian faith because so many are coming there as non-Christians. And so there's this delicate thing where we're constantly inviting people into community, but also giving you your space to explore the Christian faith. Okay. Yeah, I, you could keep going. <laughs> I've got a couple other points. Well, I want to... What you're getting ready to say. I'm sorry. Go no, you're on. fine. I, no, I was just going to say like about this. But I, I can totally understand the experience of coming for a smaller church where just because of the sheer size of it, you really are in some ways handed community because you're seeing the same people every week. There's kind of a ritual that's associated with that repetition. And then to go to a larger church where it really, you know, you're not handed it in kind of the same way. And you, you have to shift your mindset from community is given to community is sought after or community is something that you participate in. And so it's just interesting how people often you know, criticize megachurches for being very consumer oriented, but I almost feel like it's on the point of community where you really see that that's not actually true. Like we're not handing you your best friends, um, but really inviting you to participate and play an active role in community. And I've always really appreciated that. Um, okay. So Again, as you know, and actually as a lot of our listeners know, because you've probably tuned in to one of our annual church and culture conferences, um, but if you have, you've know, you know that um, for the last several years, I've had the privilege of being able to help with some of the Q&A um, after a lot of the sessions that um, Jim or some other leaders have um, led. And um, a common critique or maybe statement of lament from a lot of ministry leaders who attend these conferences um, bring up is that mega churches have the unfair advantage of having a big budget for ministry. How do you usually respond to that? Two ways. First of all, what are we talking about in terms of unfair advantage? Mm. Advantage over who? Mm, good point. We're not in competition with other churches, and it's not like we're all... I mean, I have no interest in trying to lure a happily churched person away from their church to attend Mech. I, I'm I'm after raw, card carrying, unchurched, <coughs> excuse me, people who don't give a rip about Jesus. I mean, I'm I'm so there's no advantage over what? I mean, um, I hope the only advantage we might have is competing with culture and you know, in terms of reaching people and being an alternative voice. But um, I also would say that if if the if, but if the question is meant, well, you guys can do things that we can't. I would say, well, I mean, I, I and, and if you use that as an excuse not to try to do certain things, I would I I often would say, well, look, I I I'm not trying to be self-serving, but I I do want to be authentic. No one started smaller than 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 I did. Uh, I, you know, Mac was a church plant and it was just me, my wife, and then three kids. I mean, we have four now, but that was just because we believe in church growth. So we, but we had just five, we showed up in a U-Haul. We had no people, no money, no building, no, no hiving off from another church, no big, you know, launch team. That's so common that you have these days where five or six of you, you know, friends, families all uproot and do it with you. I mean, it's just me and Susan and three preschoolers. And, uh, 
we we started off with 112 people that first Sunday through a lot of hard work and and what little money we were able to get through some direct mail. And then, as I often will joke, but this is true, through the strength of my preaching, by the third week, I'd gone from 112 to 56, just cut it right in half, you know. And so that 56 is even misleading because that and, you know, 15 or 20 back in met kids. Or, and um, and then we were so desperate. We were meeting in a Hilton hotel that if, if people were walking down the hallway and kind of stopped and looked in the ballroom for a minute, we counted them. And so, <laughs> so we're talking 25, 30 people sitting there. And so and most churches are much larger than that. So I, I know what it's like to be a small church, but I also know that that's not an excuse. You, you, you can build, you can grow and, and excellence is doing the best you can with what you have. And so um, I'm very sensitive to it because I've, you know, we've walked through all these different stages, you know, breaking the, the 50 barrier and the 70 barrier and the 120 barrier and the 250 barrier and the 500 barrier and on and on it goes. And so I think the budget that has increased over the years for at least us, I'll speak for us, has been a good thing because it's allowed us to turn around and hopefully bless other churches um, by offering resources and materials. It's also helped us with the poor and, and international efforts. We have ministry in over 20 countries, uh, fully fund orphanages, and we, 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 we build rescue houses for sex trafficked kids. And there's a lot that we do that is a good thing that, that because of the money that has flown by being a large church. We don't hoard it for ourselves. We give it away. Well, and I feel like some of our listeners are going to really lean in for this next one because it is related still to money. Because I think that this is actually a criticism that I've heard a lot from people even outside of the church, you know, people who are not believers. And it's just the financial component of big churches that can kind of rub them the wrong way, that they have all of this money. And of course, you know, there have been plenty of churches, large churches, who have mishandled money. And of course, those make um, the headlines quite often. But what about more of like the general critique about um, mega churches, the way that they, this is this is the, the criticism, the way that they spend money on luxuries or technology and equipment when really the gospel is simple and encourages like a humble lifestyle? I want to agree mm-hmm. that, that that any mishandling of finances, any type of spending on luxurious stuff, and you know, uh, you read about megachurch pastors living in fifteen, twenty thousand foot houses, and 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 all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just it's nauseating and it's grotesque. Um, and I also feel like when uh, churches spend their money lavishly on things that are not mission centric, it's 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 I, I have no patience for it. Um, uh, I will say that at Mac, we probably have less money than people think because we are so mission centric. We're not after transfer growth. And so when you have 70% of your growth coming from people who are previously unchurched, which we do, we bring in far less than other large churches our size because we're filled with tippers, not tithers. We're filled with people who are brand new to the faith. And as they say, the last thing that gets converted is your wallet. And so we are, we're, we're, um, because we're so missional and reaching lost people, we actually, um, don't have the money, you know, margin that uh, churches much smaller than us even have, because they're just filled with nothing but church believers have been taught tithing since they were kids and sitting on gobs of money in the bank. They don't even know, you know, that they don't have a, you know, even know what they're going to do with it. Um, so, uh, so I, I, I do think that that is kind of a, an interesting thing. Some of these churches may not have as much as you think if they're really being missional. Uh, second, uh, any mishandling or luxurious stuff is grotesque to me. 
Um, but if someone says, well, you just shouldn't be spending money on even technology or something like that, it's a no, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. We, we live in a post-Christian digital world and there's going to have to be money spent strategically to reach a post-Christian digital world. And if they're living online, then spending money on a website or an online campus or through social media or something like that is just evangelism 101. Mm. And so you're, you're, you know, throughout the history of the church, the, the issue is not, do you spend money? You're supposed to spend money. Churches are supposed to, you know, uh, you know, have the money come in and then under the leadership of those leaders and the Holy Spirit, then use that money strategically for the mission. I mean, that was commanded. That's what the tithe was about. That's what giving is about. That's why what churches are supposed to do and what collectively we could do things with money that we couldn't do individually for the poor and also for reaching out. And so if it's being used missionally, then I think that then, I mean, uh, we should do nothing but celebrate the money that a church has because that just means it's spending it for the mission yeah. and it's spending it for the least and the lost. Now, um, I will say that, um, but it needs to be done with enormous integrity. And that's one of the things that, you know, Mac has gone through, you know, 30 years without uh, financial scandal. Mm -hmm. um, and, but there's a reason for that. I couldn't sign a check if I wanted mm -hmm. to. Uh, I don't have any, I don't have any, you know, uh, access to funds. We have, my salary is set by trustees that are uh, all members of the church and and they can't be on staff at the church and they're voted on by the membership. You know, here the, the members vote and put in place the trustees that then set my salary and and uh, our budget is made known to the church every year and, and members vote on that budget. Um, and uh, we also have an annual outside audit not just an annual audit, but an outside audit. It's not like we audited ourselves. And then that audit is immediately given to those trustees. Um, so it's not like something we can doctor or hide or, I mean, there's just so many things you can do for just basic accountability that, um, uh, that, that protect a church large or small. I mean, every church needs to be doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Now this next critique isn't really specific, but more of something that I, you and I have talked about, um, um, just offline, but I want I wanted our listeners to eavesdrop on this a little bit because I think it, I think they'd find this interesting, and it's essentially just this um, this idea. I remember when I was starting seminary, you and I had several conversations about that. But I remember you kind of cautioning me about how in some seminary institutions there is this kind of antagonistic attitude, um, either in readings or from professors towards large churches. Can you talk about that a little bit, especially because you used to be the president of a very large seminary? So, yeah, can you let our listeners know why you why mm -hmm. you would caution me there? Well, I did caution you, and I want to be careful not to paint a broad stroke, but this is true of every seminary and every professor. But I will say that uh, because I have been involved in academia for my adult life throughout many institutions, I've spoken at many institutions, I've been a visiting professor at half a dozen or more, I'm still a distinguished professor at one university and I'm president of a seminary, uh, Gordon Conwell, where I also serve as a professor. And, and I, I will say without naming names or saying this school or that school or this professor, just in general, um, I, I, there has, there is, there has been a bias of preferring small over large and traditional over contemporary and almost, uh, and, and, and in a, not an anti-church mindset, but sometimes not a really strong local church mindset. And I remember when I was 
teaching a theology class one day. I had a young female student come up to me afterward and was thanking me for the class and was saying some nice things. And she said, I love your passion for the church. I love, I love your passion for ministry and reaching the lost and, 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 you know, innovation and doing what it takes. And, you know, she was just saying, she said, I have seen so many uh, people in her seminary with a passion for the church. And three years later, by the time they graduate, they were bowing down before the altar of the academy. Mm -hmm. And it was like that had been taken from them. And one of the things that is true is that the average seminary professor has very little, if any, very little church experience. Maybe an interim pastor here or a student pastor, but that, you know, they, they, they're, they're, they're not practitioners. They didn't, they're not coming from that, that standpoint. And sometimes uh, they can even be threatened by large churches because in our day, large churches can have more influence in seminaries. Mm -hmm. And um, that can be, create kind of a weird vibe where the seminaries want to have a partnership with large churches. They want the students to come from large churches. They want to have a, you know, that, but then at the same time, they also want to critique large churches and, and kind of like, as if, you know, and elevate the seminary over them in terms of their, their own uh, sense of what is appropriate and what is not. So it, I did warn you and I would warn anyone to be very careful because uh, some seminaries have theological agendas they want to push. Some seminaries have ecclesiastical agendas. They certainly often will have methodological agendas. And I remember a long time ago, I, I hope there's time to get to all your questions because I think this is a good conversation. But I remember a long time ago, um, uh, and this was happening in California, a group of a group of large church leaders met with the president of a very large and influential seminary. And they, they, uh, and it was because there was this this tension between these churches and what they were getting in seminary. And this one pastor stood up, you would know his name, and he said, I sent you three of my best staff. And doggone if in a year and a half, you didn't turn them against everything we're doing here and how we're doing mm -hmm. it. For no reason. Right. Just, you know, personal sensibilities. He said, so why would I send you anybody else? You know, and, and so there has been historically some of that kind of tension. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I, I've given you my list. I mean, I, there are several other points of criticism that I could hand to you, but I, what, I'm curious as to what, what have I left out that you've heard a lot? Is there anything else that you'd like to address here? <clears throat> oh, there's so many. <laughs> and we have dealt with a lot, which I appreciate, you know, but, you know, large churches, you know, don't understand small churches. And, and so whatever their insights are, are atypical and not helpful for other churches, which isn't true because almost every large church worked through every one of those sizes on their way there. And they're very sensitive to how, you know, things can work. Or large churches spend all of their money on themselves instead of the poor. That's simply not true. Large churches are some of the biggest givers to the poor of on the planet. Um, or, you know, large churches are cold and impersonal. We've talked about that, you know, and, and, and um, but I, I would say of late, beyond all that we've talked about, is there has been become almost a built-in suspicion of large churches and specifically their leadership that I haven't seen is unprecedented, uh, but has erupted really since COVID. Uh, and and uh, that where there's almost like like 
people who are happily involved in a church of a large size all of a sudden become suspicious toward it because of multiple large church leader failings. Hillsongs, Willow Creek, and, and so many others that just, and they start thinking, I wonder what I don't know. And even though there's no reason, you know, that that church is fine and that, that leadership body is healthy and, and they don't deserve that suspicion, all of a sudden they're getting asked these questions they haven't gotten asked for. And I think another re re one of the reasons why that has happened, and again, I, I don't want to get too much into the insider world of the evangelical subculture, but there was a very popular podcast put forward by Christianity Today on the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church. And it just went viral and millions of people listened to it. And by the time, and, and, it, and, and it, this was not the fault of the host, uh, Mike Cosper and the people behind it. They did an excellent job with it. But it did took, took you into this movement and, and it, you did walk away feeling like, ugh. And, you, and almost like you did almost look at like, okay, it did, whether it meant to or not, kind of made you feel like, well, large is bad and a, a, a strong leader is automatically narcissistic or strong leaders are bad and there must be financial impropriety and, and, and oh my gosh, if they write a book, then you just can assume all kinds of terrible things. And, and it was all through the, 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 the lens of, of all the terrible stuff that happened in Mars Hill and created that implosion where there was everything from um, just financial misdeeds and, and, and misuse of funds and, and plagiarism and power plays and just all kinds of horrible stuff, trail of bodies behind that place. But they projected that out on just large churches in general. And what happened with Brian Houston and Hillsongs or Bill Hybels and Willow Creek and on and on. And all of a sudden, there was like this guilt by association. I feel really bad. And it wasn't just large churches. It was toward all churches, really. Almost like every church, every leadership, all of a sudden, there was a suspicion. And particularly, though, of large. And, um, and almost as if, well, uh, I wonder what I don't know. I need to start probing and, 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 and digging and... And if I can't find anything, I'm just going to keep digging. And 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 then there's got to be something here. Got to be something here. You know. And and then if they do find even the small thing and amplifying it, they're never really. I don't know. The whole thing was just. It was it was a sad, um, dynamic that I think has happened maybe over the last three years or so. That um, it's funny. I don't I don't know that many people are talking. Yeah, about. that is interesting. It's, that's kind of like a understandable response, but also that needs to be thought through a little bit more, but yeah. Well, I mean, here I am a large church pastor listening to that thing and I was horrified <laughs> and I was wanting to, you know, you know, it was just, <laughs> I was, I was as taken by all that stuff as anybody, but it's like, but uh, you know, uh, that wasn't us. Right. Yeah. Nor is it the majority of, of the churches that people are attending. Yeah. No. Mm -hmm. Now, first of all, I, I will have to say like, I am very impressed. I, I was, I, I was so interested to see how you would take this conversation because, like I said, I'm sure you've had thick skin for many years. I mean, you, Mech has been large for a long time. And so, and I've, yeah, I've just heard all sorts of criticism um, lodged at mega churches in general. And I know how, as a founding pastor of Mech, like how dear this place is to you. Um, and you have done such a great job of, acknowledging the truth in some of the misconceptions, but also some of the falsehood in them as well. But I'm, I'm curious as to what are some dangers that are unique to megachurches that you have found yourself needing to be on guard against? Uh, when they do become personality-centered and where the leadership begins to um, have a vaulted view of their own spirituality and almost begin to believe their own press reports, or they begin to feel like they're entitled or they're better than others, or they power up and they, stuff goes to their head. 
and they begin to make the church about them and their platform and, 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 and using the church for, I don't know, fame or whatever, uh, anything like that, as opposed to hopefully a, just a towel over your arm and serving it. And, and uh, we've talked before about a level five leader, a level five leader is someone who is absolutely committed and passionate for the organization, but not themselves, but for the organization. I see a lot of where it seems like they're very passionate for themselves. Um, and what the church can do for them. So I think that's a danger. I think another one is when there's weak accountability. Um, there's a lot of churches being planted now. They have what are called outside boards. And it's just a bunch of preacher buds that they handpick that don't even live there. And, and there's no local accountability, no, no, no nothing at all like that. And 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 I I, I worry about that. And then a whole bunch of signing of non-disclosure agreements and all this kind of stuff we've talked about in various places. I mean, we can even in the notes highlight where we've talked about it, but all of that worries me considerably because that's just not healthy. And it seems to be with a lot of newer large churches, again, Mecca is not one of the newer ones. We were planted in 92, but many of the ones planted in the 2000s and 2010s and such seeming to be plagued by this. And that's where a lot of the scandal is happening, but not all, but some. Um, um, I, I think another is that a lot of, again, this is a newer phenomenon, but churches that are being planted that grow really rapidly, really fast, because we've there's been some formulas where you get a large team and, and you put a lot of money into it, and 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 um, which was not the church planning model of my day, uh, uh, where you are almost bivocational, but um, but it seems like they're looking more for charisma than character, and so um, you're seeing not all, but a lot of leaders that, that had charisma, but not character. They never were mentored. They never really had development. They never served in a church and kind of got experience in various other areas and, and kind of, you know, learned the ropes and, 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 you know, they, they come out and they're, I'm not saying this is wrong at the age, but I'm just saying they come out at, you know, 21, 20, 22, whatever in, in their twenties. And, um, uh, and, um, when I planted Mech, um, I was 30 years old. I already had my master's degree, my seminary degree, and my PhD. I had served as a student ministry pastor of one church, had served on the staff of a seminary for a while, had also been, um, and then through my PhD, was pastor of a church for three years. And then was interim pastor at another church right before coming. That all that experience before I planted, and a lot of rough edges off, not all of them, unfortunately, but a lot of them. And 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 so there was there was a, you know, there was character stuff that you know had time to surface and could be dealt with, and mentors that could be engaged. And and so I I, I would say that I, I I find that increasingly rare um, in terms of a church planter profile. And the last thing I would say is that while, while a lot of these churches, large churches are conservative, they're atheological. Um, I, I don't think that they're, they're, they're often not, um, they're, cons they're basically conservative, they're basically biblicist, but, but it's like the, the many issues of our day and, and, and dealing with various things, I, I wish there was a greater theological depth than there often is, and, and that theological depth brought to bear on many of the issues that we're, we're facing. Because what happens is, if you don't bring that theological depth, either you go the ideological route, which is dangerous, or you just go the topical route, where you're just doing endless series on parenting and marriage and basically self-help and becomes almost a therapeutic culture. 
And so there's a sense where you can have therapy and you can have, you can deal with ideology, but you really want theology at your core and bringing that to bear. So you're bringing biblical theology to bear on all of life. I wish that there was, I think that's a critique of maybe all churches, not just large, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll lay it at the table of large. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say kind of to, to wrap up the podcast is so much of what you've talked about. I feel like really the criticism isn't specific to large churches. I mean, you're, if you are looking at a church for corruption or for sin, like sin, you're going to find it everywhere because we are run, like churches are, are led by fallen human beings. And so, I mean, in some degree, you're going to find things to, that are wrong with every church or every model. Um, and, but I think what's so beautiful about kind of the example in scripture is that church doesn't, you know, to some extent, it doesn't have to look the same everywhere. And so we don't have to, you know, to sacrifice large churches at the altar of one t- enjoying something that's different, right? Like it, it, they can all be very valid ways of doing ministry. But something that I've heard you say constantly is, you know, like if you are focused on reaching others, you know, growth should be a natural byproduct of that. And so um, that, I don't know. So I loved, it's like as long, I don't know. I just love to be a part of a place where you can see that, that growth. I mean, it just, um, just a beautiful thing to be a part of. So yeah. Well, thank you. You survived. You, you survived <laughs> the criticism. Well, thank you for taking the time to do this. I, yeah, I appreciate you tackling these things heads head on. Um, and yeah, well, listeners, again, I hope this was helpful for you and, um, we hope that you'll tune in again next week. Have a great week.